This episode is brought to you by Heidi. Imagine kicking back while a HIPAA compliant AI scribe writes your soap notes for free. Yes, you heard us right. Heidi is free. I'm Dr. Tom, Heidi's CEO and founder, and we started Heidi to stop clinicians wasting their life on clinical documentation. Heidi transforms your consult babble into crisp, clear soap notes, personalizing itself with every edit. One day, Heidi will be your AI resident, looking through research, explaining plans, and doing anything you don't want to. If you currently pay for an AI scribe in your practice, you should swap to Heidi. We'll even credit you for anything you've already paid. Dive into the description for the link and make your practice the envy of every stethoscope in town. Sign up and watch Heidi work its magic all for free because you've got better things to do. Every big goal, complicated task, healthy habit, even what we think of as character traits can be broken down into small learnable skills that can be practiced and incorporated real time. These are called micro skills. Let's learn how to learn them. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Welcome back to the podcast. On today's show, we have Dr. Adara Landry. She's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. She studied and trained at UC Berkeley, UCLA, NYU, and Harvard. She's an emergency medicine physician with almost a decade of experience mentoring students and early career professionals. She's an entrepreneur, keynote speaker, an award-winning mentor, and co-founded Writing in Color, a nonprofit that teaches the craft of writing. She used that craft of writing to recently co-author the, the soon-to-be-released micro-skill, small actions, big impact, and that's what we're here to talk to her about today. So, Dr. Landry, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation to come on. So, let's talk about the book. First, why did you write it? Well, it's definitely a long story, but I'll give you the abridged version. I started writing with Dr. Risa E. Lewis, another emergency medicine doctor, I would say about three years ago, a little bit over three years ago, and we were writing about the workplace, our everyday experiences and struggles, challenges and lessons. We noticed that as we were sort of preparing to write, we were reading other outlets like Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and we found that a lot of the themes there were very applicable to what we experience within medicine, within healthcare. And so we started writing for these broader audiences, articles about how to be compassionate with email, how to write a letter of recommendation for yourself. These things that no matter what industry you're in are relevant. And because we got such great response from folks, we thought, let's you know, up the ante, raise the stakes here. And we collectively decided to write a book together. And so MicroSkills was really born out of what we found to be a need to have um, a book from people who are, you know, different perspective. We are not the typical older man, older white man in tech or in, you know, finance, writing a book about how you can lead a company. We're women. I'm a woman of color. Risa's older in age and stage. We're both in healthcare. So we have a very strong priority for taking care of the self and sort of learning how to take care of you know your body and your mind and we come from this perspective of being educators as well so we love to teach people how to attain their goals and so i would say those are the big reasons why we decided to write this um, book and so how are you defining a micro skill right that's the title of the book what is the definition of a micro skill 
Micro skill, you know, we sort of thought about it as a, a new perspective to achieve a goal. You know, when we were reading a lot of the workplace books, we found that there might be some recommendations like start your financial planning by getting a financial advisor. Well, there's a lot of assumption there as far as like, does the person know what are the red flags for a financial advisor? Does the person understand what is the average cost of a financial advisor and what we're going to ask them to do? And so when we were reading a lot of books, we found that people were teaching in generalities, very high level advice. And so a micro skill is really like the smallest fundamental element that you can take to make yourself go forward towards a goal, a larger goal. And so the way we sort of approach our micro skill is we obviously like to give stories. This book is full of anecdotes, personal anecdotes from myself and from Dr. Lewis. And we think that's important because we want people to really understand that we're coming from, when we're writing this book, we're coming from a place of experience. We have struggled or succeeded in everything that we're teaching. This isn't like, oh, we heard about something, but it's never really applied to us. Everything is very personal. And so we start with a personal vignette to sort of, just sort of validate what someone else might be experiencing. And then we go into why we think this is needed because we want everyone to understand that a small skill, no matter how small it is, there still should be value and purpose behind it. And you shouldn't feel like you're just doing it for the fun of it. And then we go into why it's hard because no matter how small some action is, it can still be hard to do, right? You might not have time or money or confidence. And then we get into this, the strategic critical actions. Like what are the smallest steps that you can do to obtain this micro skill? That actually sounds a lot like what, so I interviewed BJ Fogg, who is a habit psychologist a long time ago, and his book is called Tiny Habits. There's this barrier to entry for a habit is sometimes really, seems like really big. So you break it down into like the smallest possible increment in order to make it surmountable in case, you know, one day you're not motivated in order to integrate it into your life. And so it, it seems like that's what you've done with skills instead of habit. You're breaking it down into the smallest possible, like bite-sized component to make it more, I guess, palatable. And the other thing that's a little bit probably more unique than some of the other books that you read is that we have a very holistic approach to the book. Like it's not just, you know, tiny habits for your house or micro skills for your house rather. It's for your holistic environment that's going to make you feel better about having a job. And so we start the book with, you know, micro skills for self-care because we think that, you know, at the fundamental element of, you know, any aspect of trying to better yourself at work, like you have to really feel comfortable, feel confident with who you are as an individual. And so we, we bring up a few times in the book, actually many times in the book, this sort of triad of, you know, taking care of the self taking care of the team, and then taking care of the work that you do. And we think all three pillars are really important for anyone to have a better grasp on how they approach work. That sounds very macro. So where's the micro skill there? Well, the micro skills are, we have you know over 100 small skills that you can use to sort of work towards those much larger goals. And so it might be helpful to sort of review with the audience the 10 big chapters that we have. And then, you know, under each of these 10 chapters, we have anywhere between seven to I think 11 micro skills. So for instance, we have micro skills for self-care, micro skills to manage a task list, micro skills for polished communication, to build and maintain your reputation, for becoming a subject matter expert, to learn your workplace culture, to be a team player, to grow your network, for navigating conflict, to actively find new opportunities. And so underneath all of these, you'll find more nuanced micro skills. 
So let's take an example of one of those micro skills, right? And, you know, the question was going to be, which of those, which of these micro skills has most impacted your life, either personally, professionally, although from your description, it sounds like that might be hard to do because these have all been taken from your personal experience. And so if you could just find a way to, to pick your favorite or something, you know, to, to give us an example. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I will say that the reason why we did our table of contents the way it is, because we want this book to be something that if you're struggling with a particular aspect of work, you know, on on one day, you can just open up the table of contents and go, you know, directly to that item versus having to read the book cover to find it. And so I will say that my favorite table of contents or my favorite micro skill really depends on where I am. In, in a particular week. And so, you know, right now I would say managing a task list is really important because I can find myself easily overwhelmed with all the things on my plate. And so one thing that's been really helpful for me is is setting realistic due dates or deadlines so that I feel like when I say yes to something or I'm, I'm putting something on my plate, I'm committing to any task or opportunity, I have a really practical perspective on when I can actually complete that work. And this was, again, born out of many times I've made a mistake of saying, I'll get that to you tomorrow. And then two or three days have passed and I still haven't even addressed it. And so for me, just sort of being realistic with like thinking about something that comes my way and stopping and pausing and reflecting on what have I, how long has it taken me in the past to do similar work? That's very important. And then how much actual available free time I have now is equally important, right? And so between the combination of those two, and there's some other things that we mentioned in the book, it's much more helpful to think about, actually, I won't be able to get that done today or tomorrow because I just looked at my calendar. There's no school. I have all three of my kids home. So I'm actually not going to be able to do work um, if I'm going to be honest with myself. So it's probably going to be the day after tomorrow. I can get it to you, right? So just being like very... practical about what time you have actually got it and knowing when within your life it's actually going to happen yeah that happens to me all the time where the list just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until i start to decompensate and then have to just like force some time out of nowhere i've just like lock myself in my room which might not be the most convenient time for my family but it's just gotten to this critical mass what was the epiphany moment where you realized that was a better way to manage that manager time? (laughs) Well, I think the biggest epiphany I had about work and needing to reframe and and just reapproach work was when I had signed up for a um, panel that was literally titled work-life balance for like women physicians. And the panel, when I signed up, was emailed to me as it's going to start at 630. And I remember asking, is it possible to do this during business hours because my kids are home and it's going to be really tough? And they're like, no, we have to do it at this time. And so I said yes. And the night of the panel, my kids were awake. At that time, I only had two and they were like two and four years old. And I'm trying to put my kids to bed and the panel's about to start in 10 minutes and they're not going to sleep. And so I, you know, close my door to my bedroom 
and they're trying to open the door. So I literally slide my dresser against the door to like keep them out. And they're <laughs> and I'm like on the panel and they're like asking me all these questions. I can hear my kids on the other side like saying, mommy, in, let us in. And literally the question that made me say, okay, this is not working anymore was when someone said, Dr. Landry, you seem to have a great balance on work and life. Can you tell us how you do it? And so I thought to myself, I said, this is like not the way. This is not the way. And so. What's your secret? Large, heavy barriers. That is my secret. Moving furniture. Ikea yeah. dressers. Exactly. At that point, it was like Ikea. I was like pushing Ikea. Dr- I mean, so it was like a wake up call to me that I was living this like life that was not sustainable. And, you know, just thinking about all of the priorities I had and and all of the um, commitments I was bundled onto. And so that really made me pause. And the first thing I did was take a look at my schedule. And I said, you know what? I'm going to block out meetings from 6 to 9 p.m., literally. And I said, I'm not, I'm just not going to have meetings during that range because for my mental health, it's not great. For my kids, it's terrible. And even if I have a meeting, like I can't fully be present because I'm going to be sort of divided between whatever's going on in my house and whatever meeting or obligation I have on my plate. And so that was the first sort of, we have a bunch of micro skills about protecting your calendar, but that was my first move was taking that step to say, when are the times where I'm actually stressed out if I have more on my plate and being honest with myself. And from there, I started blocking off my weekends and saying, I'm not going to, other than shifts, like obviously I, I have to work on weekends because it's part of my job, but I don't do conferences. I don't do anything else on the weekends. There are some exceptions, but it's so rare. Probably t- two times a year, I make an exception to that. But otherwise, I don't do work on the weekends. It's like family time. It's deliberate rest time. Yeah. And there will be a point where your kids are old enough where those weekends will be free. And then you can reintegrate them. But right now, yeah, that time is sacred. Yeah. Are your, are they getting into sports yet? The weekends are packed. And honestly, I can't imagine a time where they're not going to be packed, like going forward. They're in everything. But honestly, it's not just for my kids. Like even when my kids get older, like I still need that time for myself. Right. And so I, like it's really important to just have that break because I feel like when I go back to work on Monday, like I'm really productive. So when people are like, oh, how are you able to accomplish so much? It's because I have really good quality moments where I'm resting. To get the most out of your career as a physician, you need an employment contract that supports you. Unfortunately, most contracts do not initially include everything you need to be successful. Employers draft contracts with their best interests in mind, but the terms that benefit your employer are rarely as valuable to you. Before signing an employment contract, you should always make sure your salary, bonuses, paid time off, and other terms are fair. Resolve is the one and only place you can get live salary data so you know exactly what's happening in your specialty at all times. The best part of the data is that it's verified from real physician contracts. With access to data on what physicians like you are earning, you know when you're being underpaid and can confidently ask for what you deserve. In addition to providing data, they're the number one firm specializing in physician employment contracts. They work with every specialty nationwide. At Resolve, You get connected with an experienced attorney who will work with you one-on-one to ensure you sign with confidence. Your attorney will take your priorities into account, address concerns, make suggestions, and help you strategize for any negotiation 
They can even negotiate with an employer on your behalf. So whether you're a seasoned attending or just finished training, Resolve is here to support you in every step of the way. Visit resolve.com to learn more and discover how to sign your ideal employment contract. Resolve, your trusted partner for physician contract review, negotiations, and salary data. Yeah, do less. Do less. That's how you're able to do more. Yeah, counterintuitive, but when you say it like that, it makes sense. And the things that I say yes to, I'm very strategic about. Like, I don't say yes to everything. We talk about it in the book because, you know, again, talking about these opportunities, like, I don't know about you, Dr. Block, but I was taught to say yes to everything. And I think many of us are told that, and that sort of leads to that overwhelm. So in the book, we talk about how, you know, for me, what I tell my advisees, I'm an advisor at the medical school. I tell them to not say yes to everything, but to say, tell me more, because that really does allow you to see all of the benefit of an opportunity and all of the red flags that you might've previously missed. Yeah, I had had, uh, another physician on the show that talks a lot about overwhelm, Dr. Mello. And one of the things that she said that really resonated with me was, you're a physician. There are always going to be more opportunities. It's like we've got this mindset, like, if we don't take this one now, there's never going to be another opportunity like this. And the answer is, there's going to be another one six months from now, a year from now, maybe even tomorrow. We're rolling in opportunities. So, like, if it's something that you're, like, super excited about, then that's one thing. But if it's anything less, that's you know, you got to really think about saying no. Yeah. Yeah. We're trained. Yeah. That's how we got to where we are by saying yes to everything. But then. And there's probably some value when you're like really undecided to sort of taking a leap and taking a risk. But the, you know, FOMO is, you know, can really hurt you. So the fear of missing out can really hurt you. I recently learned about the concept of JOMO the joy of missing out, J-O-M-O. And just how, and it's like, it's really, you know, freeing when someone offers you something and you can decline and say, wow, I just said no. And now I have more time, not not necessarily more time on my plate, but I have kept the time on my plate to be mine and in my control. I feel like that encapsulates my wife right there. She's like, could we just stay home? Can we just, do we have to go anywhere? Can we just like stop doing stuff and stay home? She's definitely, I mean, I, there's this, I think it's Danish term, hygge, where it's like comfort. You're just like wrapped in a warm blanket and drinking tea in front of a fire. You're just like super comfortable. I, th- I think that's what it is. So that's the joy of missing out right there. You just get to, you get to recharge. Mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of it has to do with like what we place value on. I mean, we definitely place value in work. That's why when we're young kids, everyone's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the answer to that is almost always an occupation and not like a character trait, right? Like no one says, I want to be honest or I want to be kind. They say, I want to be a doctor or a firefighter. And so, yes, I would say that I, I love that term. I need to remember it. But yeah, comfort is really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the questions that I had for you was... I think we might have to take a little different spin on it, but it was like, let's say we're this burnout because I, I know so many of these physicians, right? They're these mid-career physician who is kind of like seeing everything is very routine at this point. You're not getting a lot of joy out of your career, but you're not also not going anywhere. So, so you need to spice things up, right? The question was going to be, can you give us some direction in terms of micro or macro skill to pursue in that situation? Oh, okay. Well then let's do it. 
I'm going to zoom back for one second just to tell a quick story. When I was an intern in residency, I had a lunch with one of the greatest mentors I've ever had, Dr. Uche Blackstock. And she told me that there's so much you can do with your MD. She was on the show like three, four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. She's a great guest. Yeah. Yeah. And so she was the one who told me there's so much you can do with your MD. And I didn't quite understand that at the time. Right. Because almost all of the the people I had been exposed to were primarily just clinicians. And so I didn't really have the visibility of what else you can do with your MD. But now that I'm in a different academic institution where almost all of my colleagues are part time because they have something else going on, I, I have seen that you can be anything that you really want to be with the credentials we have. And so learning how to, I'm going to talk about the micro skill of learning how to transfer your skills, because we talk about that a lot and how, you know, from my, from my standpoint, I did ultrasound fellowship and then I did a master's in education. I just did a general master's in education, not medical education, because I felt like the general aspect of education is more transferable than just medical education. And so I ended up actually being a consultant, like one of the lead consultants for an AI ultrasound startup using my background in general education and like how to build platforms and things like that. And my background in ultrasound. So, you know, I was always seeing patients up until that point, but then for about a solid two year window, I was working like 20 hours a week for this startup, just helping them build their platform. And they were using a lot of my skills as a physician and also my skills as a sonographer and my skills as an educator. But I hadn't, you know, I didn't know going into medicine that I would ever end up in tech. Again, thinking about my career as a writer, like a lot of the stuff that we talk about and write about, excuse me, are things that we experience on a regular basis as a physician. So I would say to someone, really think about the skills you have. And skills don't necessarily mean degrees or positions, right? It could just be, I'm a really great communicator. People tell me that I'm very direct and honest and comforting, or I'm a a really good speaker and I give amazing lectures. So I'm actually gonna build a side gig where I'm giving CME lectures for industry, right? So you have to think about like, what are the skills that you're really good at, right? Like you, Dr. Block, you have a podcast. So maybe you would start a coaching company for early podcasters. And that could be anywhere, right? It doesn't have to be just in medicine, but like those are the things that like, you know, you have to do. And so for folks who are, you know, trying to explore because they're just so stuck, I would say pause and think about what you know and what other industries, what other genre or group of people can benefit from those skills. And I like the spin you put on that with, your degree in education, right? Because I think we tend to stay within medicine. I mean, which you did, right? An AI ultrasound company, but your master's was in general education. And I think, you know, if you get a master's in medical management, you'll be one of like, you know, 80% will be physicians. I've just picked a number, right? In that room. Whereas if you get, you know, a different type of advanced degree in some completely unrelated field, then yeah, then you'll be more of a unicorn and then hopefully you'll be able to find a way to bridge those two worlds together. Or, yeah, who knows, get out of medicine completely and find a way. But, you know, you'll make your skills more specialized by being in a, you know, getting a completely different set of skills. 
the reason why I will stay in medicine for as long as I'm able to tolerate it <laughs> is because there's a lot of value it brings. A, you're really helping society. I mean, I think, you know, it's hard to see it when you're when there's all the borders everywhere and people are complaining. I, I, I get that part. Um, but it's a really great way to show how an individual, each of us, can really help a ton of people within one clinical day. The second thing is I really think as a physician, we see... A, a variety of people and the conditions in which they exist in the world. And that gives a lot of perspective as far as where there are needs for people like us to come and solve problems. And so to me, I think staying close to medicine for myself, I don't want to speak for everyone because some people just like they have to leave for their mental health and I get it. But for me, I like staying pretty close to it because I feel like it allows me to see the gaps. That's actually why we started the nonprofit Writing in Color was because I could see that my parent that my patients were struggling with medical literacy and just not feeling comfortable with writing. And so, you know, that was an issue that I saw on a regular basis, you know, just not being able to really understand how to write to their physician, how to write emails, those sorts of things was a struggle. And so, you know, had I not been in that situation or, you know, seeing these people clinically, I perhaps could have lost this idea. Yeah. No, that's that's an amazing point. So actually, could you talk a little about what Writing in Color is all about? Yeah, Writing in Color is a nonprofit that I have co-founded with an amazing physician, Dr. Farah Dadaboy. And um, we have, over the last few years, led courses for free for people of color who are interested in writing. And so we're hoping over the summer to have another big launch of courses for high school students here in Boston. And then I think we are already sort of partnering with a, another organization that is focused on indigenous students who are pre-med and teaching them as well. Just the basics of writing. It's, it, you know, our goal is like just how to teach someone what a beautiful sentence looks like or a, a clear, clear, simple, direct sentence looks like. Oh, that's amazing. So I've heard you talk about the transition from learner to teacher. And how, like, when you're picking up a new skill, you can really solidify that skill by teaching it to other people. Now, I think as physicians, we're often apprehensive to teach others something unless we're, like, first author on a textbook, right? Like, we have to be one of the world's authorities on something in order to feel like we're not an imposter and teach other people to do something. But your argument is actually pretty early on into learning something, you should be able to start teaching it. And that will continue to solidify how you, your skill and funded knowledge. So can you speak to that a little? Yeah, I'm going to push back on the idea that that physicians don't want to teach until they are author, like first authors, only because think about when you were in medical school and, you know, a fourth year medical student and you have a first year medical student who's on your team. Like you, I'm certain you were teaching them some basics of how to integrate with the team, how to take an HMP. And even as a resident, right, when you're a first year resident working with a medical student or fourth year resident working with your interns, like you're teaching and you're teaching really complex information. It might not be super comprehensive because you're still learning, but you're teaching enough. And so you probably have to think about your audience and who you are capable of teaching a particular topic to and what you know. And so for me, like I can I would be able to teach someone who's never written a book, some of the basics of writing a book, but I probably wouldn't be able to teach a room full of editors about the publishing industry 
in, in, unless I'm telling the perspective, like my, I'm basing it on my perspective and what my experience was like publishing. And my goal is to teach them from the author's viewpoint, like what, how I see it and how they can come in. So you can sort of like, you know, f- reframe things no matter who you're teaching to. But I'm going to say that you could talk to a room full of editors about how to work with physician authors, right? Because they that's a fund of knowledge they don't have. That's something that you clearly know about. So, yeah, I guess you could even teach in that situation as long as you're spinning it correctly. As, as long as you know something, there's room to teach, right? And, and as long as you've lived the experience, there's even more to teach, right? Because people want to know personal. That's why stories are enticing and, and, and we're drawn to them is because they want to know what it was like for you. And they want to see themselves through that story as well. So we're going to we're going to have to wrap up in a little bit but can you pick one more micro skill just one more so we just assume this is an audience of mid career we're I mean we're all over the map in terms of where we are in our careers and what our specialties are and where we are geographically but you know because I'm a mid career physician let's focus on that just one micro skill your favorite your, to talk about your least favorite to talk about and you know whichever one <laughs> Well, I love talking about the, I love talking about them all, but I'm going to talk about um, discovering your networking needs because I think a lot of people don't recognize the value of networking, even mid-career. I have colleagues who are like, I don't really have a network. I just have the people in my department and that's who they connect with and that's who they rely on. And so I would say that my career like went from, you know, a straight line to like a very positive slope when I started networking outside of my department. This is not a slight against my colleagues. My colleagues are fantastic, but they weren't doing exactly what I was hoping that they were doing. Like they're all doing their own thing, right? Yeah, that's not where the opportunities are. There's not like you, you've you got your little micro universe and you need to be in the macro, in the cosmos. The yeah. bigger universe, right? And so I started networking on a national level and that led to international opportunities. And so, you know, I think... You can start small with your network, right? You could just ask one person, you know, hey, do you know anyone who's even remotely interested in this topic that you can introduce me to? That's the easiest, right? An introduction. But you can also cold email. And so one thing that I do is I'm on social media, but I'm like in the shadows. I'm not very active, but I observe other people and I direct message a lot. Because to me, I send those messages like, hey, I just saw you posted this article, this is so aligned with the work that I'm doing. If you ever want to collaborate, please let me know. Right. So I do. I like that. I like that spin on it. If you want to collaborate, because it doesn't really, it's like, hey, can I have this thing from you? It's more like, hey, if you see an opportunity for us to work together. I do both. But when I ask people for something like a meeting, I ask for a very short meeting, right? I ask for like 15 minutes instead of a half an hour. I definitely never ask anyone for an hour of their time, especially if I don't know them. So I'm just like, hey, can we get on a call for 15 minutes? I just have a few questions about what it's like to work at, you know, X university, or I have a few questions about your position. You know, I'm happy to have the call when you're commuting 15 minutes, you know, during this window, whatever's convenient for you. Like, you know, I think you have to be accommodating to them as well. And and I think the first thing is asking for a short window of time. So I would say, you know, networking is so important. The most successful people I know are the most connected people I know. And so really trying to build those connections because once people know who you are, 
what brands you're trying to build, what sort of subject matter expertise you're trying to build. And they have an opportunity that comes their way and they're like, oh, this isn't really great for me, but it's wonderful for Dr. Block. I'll send it your direction. And so that has been my personal experience and Dr. Lewis's as well. Do you think those successful people are connected because they're successful or successful because they're connections? It's both, but you have to start somewhere, right? Like most people aren't just starting with success like the day they enter a workforce. They have to build that credibility, that reputation. They have to put themselves out there and take risks and they have to network and let people know like, hey, I'm. this is the stuff that I'm, I'm interested in. Let me know how I can help you. And if you see anything that aligns with me, like feel free to ping me, send it my way. And I think that is part of the success. I would say that few people are handed opportunities and power and authority and all that stuff on a platter. Most of us had to work hard in the shadows to get there. Which is your preferred social media outlet for pinging people? Ooh, I'm most comfortable on Twitter because that's where I started, or now it's called X. But I would say that a lot, yeah, it's still called, yeah, <laughs> I'm still there. No, but you're still you're still active on it. Yeah, oh yeah, because I think there's still a lot okay. of people who are, you know, maybe not so much met Twitter, but I think there's still a lot of people who are interested in Twitter. But I would say LinkedIn for like the workplace is probably the second most active. Because I think that the LinkedIn audience is probably a little bit more more focused on just career building and networking. Yeah. All right. Well, if someone wants to, hears this and wants to ping you, where do they find you on Twitter and LinkedIn or anywhere else? I'm on all of them. I have TikTok, Instagram. That I don't. I'm not, like I said, I don't use them in the form of like posting my breakfast and dinner and pictures of my kids. I'm, they're just mediums to honestly connect with other people through direct message. So I'm not very active in like a in a front facing way but like behind the scenes i'm like messaging people all the time so twitter instagram tiktok and linkedin i'm at um adara landry md so pretty simple fantastic dr adara landry author of micro skill small actions big impact thank you so much for your time thanks for having me thanks again from heidi Elevate your practice with a free AI scribe, zero cost, HIPAA compliant, and time saving. Ready to swap? We've got you covered for past AI scribe expenses. Head to HeidiHealth.com, get started, and make your practice the envy of every stethoscope in town. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. 